and let's stand for the reading of the Word of God. We are still in the book of 1 Peter, continuing our series. We're going to be in chapter 1. This is 1 Peter chapter 1, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 13. Peter writes, Therefore, prepare your minds for action, and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Just two years before he died in 1669, uh, Rembrandt painted one of his most iconic paintings entitled The Return of the Prodigal Son. It's a painting based on Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. And if you've grown up in church at all, perhaps you are familiar with this story. Jesus tells a story about a young man who goes to his wealthy father and asks for his inheritance now. Now, fathers, could you imagine if your sons did that to you? (laughs) I want the inheritance now. Before you die, I don't want to wait on it. I want it now. And then he took that inheritance and he ran away. And he spent all of it, the Bible tells us, on reckless living. And having wasted and squandered his inheritance, this young man finds himself working in a pig trough, trying to make ends meet. He who used to be wealthy is not at all, and he is completely cut off from his father. And so he decides, I'm going to go back. I'm going to return. But he doesn't know how his father is going to react. And so as he returns, we're told, Jesus tells us that his father sees him far off in the distance and his father comes running to him and embraces him with love and with grace. It's an amazing story. And it's so amazing of a story that Rembrandt wanted to capture. What what was that moment like? when that father embraced his son. What would that look like for a broken young man to come into the gracious arms of his loving father? And so with all his skill, with such detail, Rembrandt painted this painting. And you can see his mastery with every little thought and every little stroke. This young man dressed in rags, completely tattered, kneeling before his father, His head low, his shoes are so worn that they don't even cover his feet anymore. His father dressed in luxurious clothing, setting his hands graciously on the shoulders of his son. And Rembrandt also, though, painted another figure standing off to the side. It's the older brother. The older brother 
also dressed in luxurious clothing, standing several feet away from his brother, not embracing him, standing tall and proud, his arms folded like this with a scowl on his face. It's as if Rembrandt painted a thought in his mind. You are not worthy to return as a son. Only I am worthy to be a son. I'm the one who stayed. I'm the one who did it right. That's a powerful image. An image contrasting self-righteousness and brokenness. An image so powerful that Henry Nouwen wrote a book about it. A little short book. And in it, he writes this. He says, the parable that Rembrandt painted might well be called the parable of the lost sons. Not only did the younger son who left home look for freedom and happiness in a distant country get lost, but the one who stayed home also became a lost man. What is now in saying? I think he recognized something that Rembrandt saw. That really the parable of the prodigal sons, really, it really is a parable about two sons and how they were both equally lost, equally cut off from their father. You see, I, I think they recognized that there really is two sides of one sin. Self-righteousness and rebellion. Now, some of us in this room this morning, that sin looks a lot like the younger brother, right? We, we hate the idea of rules. We hate the idea of authority, the idea of an institution, and so we rebel. We completely rebel. We rebel against God. We rebel against His church. We rebel against His commands. But other of us have the same sin. It's the same sin, but it's flipped on its head. That sin looks like this, that we love rules. We love the idea of obedience. We love following the commands of God, but more than that, we love getting the credit. We love that we're doing it right, and we judge others for doing it wrong. Self-righteousness. What I want you to see this morning is the gospel does not call us to self-righteousness. The gospel does not call us to rebellion. The gospel of Jesus Christ calls us to something completely different. It calls us to holiness. Holiness is not licentiousness and holiness is not legalism. Holiness is not self-righteousness and it's not rebellion. You see, holiness is not moralism at all. Holiness is something much deeper than that. See, holiness, yes, is not about keeping all the rules, but it also keeps all the rules. Holiness really is not about what we do or don't do. It's about who we are, who we are as God's own sons and daughters. And this morning, I want you to see this really in three ways as we look at 1 Peter together. The first way is this, that holiness is bearing God's image. Second, holiness is being different. And third, holiness ultimately is belonging to Jesus Christ. And in these three ways, what I want you to see is why holiness is so crucial, foundational in how we relate as people to the holiness of God. 
but it also defines who we are as sojourners called to holiness in a broken world. The first way we see that we are called to be holy is this, that we are called to bear the image of God. Holiness is bearing God's image. Look with me. This is verse 13. Peter says this. Peter says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Right? It's a call to action. So what is Peter calling us to do? Well, he says, be sober-minded. Be an obedient child. Be holy. And as Peter is imploring this to us, he is trying to get a hold, not our sense of morality, but our sense of holiness, our sense of godliness. There is a huge difference between moralism and holiness. And you see, I think this is one of the great lies of modern evangelical Christianity, that we have confused the two. That we think being holy is essentially being moral. But my friends, moralism is not the gospel. It is not Christianity. Moralism is goodness defined on human terms. Moralism says, I need to be better than all of you. And if I'm better than all of you, then God will look down on me and have favor. Moralism produces an attitude that sometimes we get blamed with as Christians, holier than thou. That is not the gospel. That is not holiness. J.C. Ryle puts it this way in his book, Holiness, I could not recommend it enough. He says, let us never measure our religion by that of others and think that we are doing enough if we've gone beyond our neighbors. That's moralism. Holiness is something completely different. Holiness is goodness defined on God's divine standards. It's recognizing that God is holy. And the more that we see he is holy, we're going to see pretty quickly that we are not. Holiness is goodness defined on his standards. And Ryle continues, he puts it this way, he says, Holiness is the habit of being with one mind with God, hating what he hates, loving what he loves, seeing the whole world through the standard of his word. Now we see all of this. Honestly, we see all of this in one word. And it's a word you probably would pass up if you're not careful. And it's the word therefore. Therefore. Before, before Peter gives any of his commands, he says therefore. You see, the first 12 verses of his letter have been all about who God is and what he has done. Peter tells us God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what has he done? Well, God the Father in his grace sent his Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for your sins. And now by the power of the Holy Spirit, he is calling you to be holy. So therefore, be how God has set you free to be. That's what Peter's saying. Therefore, be holy. How? Verse 15. Be holy in all your conduct, Peter says, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. We are called to be holy in the same way God is holy. This is Leviticus. Perhaps you've heard that before. I want you to really think this morning, what does that mean? Be holy, God says, as I am holy. Well, for starters, that, that should be staggering to you. 
that God is saying, listen, I want you to be as holy as I am. So what's the holiness of God? Well, the holiness of God means he's perfect. Absolutely perfect. Perfect in his goodness, perfect in his love, perfect in his mercy, perfect in his purity. Now, if you're honest this morning, as I'm saying those things, you should be checking off that list and saying, yeah, I'm not that, I'm not that, I'm not that, I'm not that. If there's anything the holiness of God teaches us is that we are not holy. We are not perfect. No, we are broken in our love, broken in our purity. So why would a holy God tell a bunch of unholy sinners like you and me to be holy? Because that's how he designed us to be. Genesis tells us that we were made in his image. That we've been called to be his image bearers. And if God is holy, then we are called as his image bearers to reflect that holiness in the world around us. And so the problem with our unholiness is that when we are unholy, when we are sinful, not only are we immoral, but we're actually blasphemous. Blasphemous in the way that we live. That we are reflecting a broken image of who God is. God calls us, be holy as I am holy. Okay, so what does that look like? Second, holiness is being different. What does it look like? Well, it's to be different, Peter says. Look at verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, okay? So we're called to be different. But Peter's concern is not to be different than all of you people, right? He's not saying, okay, be different than all of the pagans around you. Be better than them. That's not what he's saying. No, he's saying be different than you used to be. You need to be different because you are different now. You've been set free. You've been changed. Peter tells us in verse 3, you've been born again. He says you have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You have been crucified with Christ. You have been raised with Christ, and now you are called to be holy because God has completely transformed you from the inside out. It's as if Peter is saying, listen, you've been rescued. You've been set free, so live that way. That's what it means to be holy. Be different than you used to be. Kevin DeYoung in a great little book, called The Hole in Our Holiness. He puts it this way, and I think this really rings true for us. He says, it sounds really spiritual to say that God is interested in a relationship, but not in rules. But that's not a biblical idea. And he goes on, he says, from top to bottom, the Bible is full of commands. They aren't meant to stifle a relationship with God, but to protect it, to seal it, and define it. My friends, listen, it is a complete distortion of the gospel to think that grace gives us the license to go on sinning. That distorts the gospel. It cheapens grace. And more than that, it robs us of the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. We believe that the gospel works 
Do you believe that? That the gospel is powerful. That it has the power to transform us from darkness into light. That it has the power to take the hardest sinner to pierce their heart and to transform them from the inside out. We believe that so much that it's part of our mission statement even as a church. Did you know that? That we exist to extend the transforming presence of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is powerful. It's so powerful that we are called now to live holy lives. To be different than we used to be. To be transformed from unholy sinners to men and women who've been called holy by the grace of God. Be different. Be different than you were, but also, Peter's saying, be different. Yes, you are different than the world around you, but not how you think. Look at verse 17. Peter says, if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. To be holy is to be different than you were, but it's also be different than the world around you. Now, you might first think, okay, well, I'm different than the world around me ethically. That's really what defines my difference. I'm called to be different as far as my ethics goes. That as a Christian, right, my morals are different than the morals of a secular society. And so I defer from the culture. But notice what he says. He says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. In other words, You've been exiled. He's continuing this theme throughout his letter that you are sojourners. Sojourners in exile. Why? Well, not because you have different rules than everybody else. It's because you serve and are identified with a different God than everybody else. Our difference is not primarily in what we do and don't do. It's in who we are as we identify ourselves with Jesus Christ. There's a Yale theologian, his name is Miroslav Volf, he puts it this way, he says, Christian identity creates difference from social environment, not the other way around. Okay, what does that mean? Let me give you a picture of what this means. I grew up in Waco, Texas. All right, so any bears? I wasn't a bear, but that's where I grew up. Uh, I grew up my, really, my entire childhood. Now, you might not know this, but Waco, Texas is also known of, uh, as, by many, Jerusalem on the Brazos. Do you know that? <laughs> Jerusalem on the Brazos. Why? Because literally there's, there's a church on every single street corner. I mean, I don't know if this is true, but it feels like there's more churches per capita in Waco than any other place, right? Now, growing up in, in a culture like that, you would think that I had heard the gospel. And, and maybe I did mixed in somewhere, but growing up, I feel like I didn't. What I heard about Christianity was this, that it was about what you don't do. That's what defines Christianity. Christianity is a bunch of people who don't sin, who don't smoke, who don't cuss, who don't drink, who don't do wrong things. But that is not what defines us. What defines Christianity is what we actually do that we are identified, body and soul, with our Lord Jesus Christ. When we identify ourselves with Jesus, well then of course we're going to be different than the world around us. He told us we would be. 
He said, listen, in so much as the world has rejected me, the world will also reject you. Do not define yourself morally from the world around you. Define yourself spiritually like Jesus Christ. He is holy and he has called us to bear his image and be holy as well. And as sojourners, we are now called to be redemptive in the way that we now bear that holiness out in the world around us. So if we are holy, bearing his image, and we are holy in that we are different, then how do we actually do that? How does somebody actually become holy? Our third and final point this morning, holiness is belonging to Jesus. How can unholy sinners live up to the holiness of God? You can't. We are made holy, not by anything that we have done or can do or will do. We are made holy by belonging to Jesus Christ. I want you to see this in verse 18. Peter says, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Peter says, you have been ransomed. You have been ransomed from your feudal ways with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. You cannot understand what it means to be holy unless you understand what it means to be ransomed. The Old Testament Levitical law, it provided for a family member, the closest living family member of a slave, to have the special ability and privilege to buy that slave out of their slavery. It was known as the kinsman redeemer. And this relative could go to that slave's master, could ask for a price, and could pay that price in order to rescue that slave out of bondage. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is your kinsman redeemer. He has rescued you out of the bondage and slavery of sin. He has ransomed you. And he did this, Peter says, not with silver or gold, but with his own blood. It is precious. He has bought you, and now you belong to him. And what I want you to see this morning is he did this not because of anything that you have ever done, but while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. And so holiness is not about the work that you can do for God. No, holiness is about God's work and what he has done for you. He bought you with the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. John Owen puts it this way. He says, some would have a moral virtue to be holiness with which they understand their own reason and practice to be their strength. But the gospel truth is that the only root wherein the gospel holiness will grow is Jesus Christ. Holiness is born not of what our abilities can make us do. It's born out of the reality of the gospel. Christ's blood shed for you and shed for me. Now, I know that for many of us, we might believe that. Some of you might not. I want to ask you this morning, are you holy? 
Because if you are unholy, you are cut off from God forever, from his holiness. Have you received the blood of Jesus Christ to be your holiness? But if you do believe that this morning, you also have a problem. And that you're probably, like many Christians, who think, yes, I am saved by grace and by the blood of Christ, but now my sanctification, well, that's up to me. That my Christian practice now is Jesus plus. Jesus plus works. Yes, I know Jesus died for me, I get that, but now I've got to earn it back, right? No, that's wrong. That is not what holiness is. Holiness is recognizing, yes, you have been saved by the power of the cross, but now you are also being sanctified by the power of the cross as well. So what does that look like? What does it look like to pursue holiness if it's not self-righteousness, if it's not rebellion? What does it look like to just be holy if it means you can't do that in your own strength, in your own effort? I think the best example I could give you from a man who's much more eloquent than me, C.S. Lewis. This is from Mere Christianity. Lewis writes, I think all Christians would agree with me if I said that though Christianity seems at first to be all about morality, all about duties and rules and guilt and virtue, that it leads you on. It leads you on out of all of that into something beyond. Okay, what is that something beyond moralism? Lewis continues, one has a glimpse of a country where they do not talk of such things, except perhaps as a joke. And in this country, Lewis says, everyone there is filled full of what we would call goodness, as light fills a mirror. But they do not call it goodness. They do not call it anything. They're not thinking of it at all, because they are too busy gazing and looking at the source from which it comes. How do we cultivate holiness grown from the gospel of Jesus Christ? By gazing into the holiness of God, by fixing our eyes on the cross, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and recognizing that we are holy because he has made us holy by his precious blood. Peter ends this thought in verse 20. He says, he was foreknown, that is Jesus, before the foundation of the world. But it was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope in God. What I want you to see is that this is all, our holiness, it's for the glory of God. It's not for our glory. I would say that's probably one of the first signs that you could really tell if your holiness is in your own strength or it's in God's. Are you proud of yourself? Are you trying to be obedient for your own glory? Or have you fixed your gaze on Jesus Christ, recognizing that it is his holiness that has made us holy? Because the more that we are holy like that, the more that we are so overwhelmed with the goodness and holiness of God that we cannot help but live holy, obedient lives. We don't get the glory for that. God does. 
God is the one who gets the glory. In our holiness, people don't see us. They see a living testimony of the power and majesty and glory of God. That surely if God can transform a bunch of unholy sinners like us, maybe he could transform me too. Peter says, be holy. Be holy as God is holy. And bear out the holiness of God and the world around you. So that we could see the redemption and rescue and ransom of Jesus Christ in our lives every single day. And see that rescue come to bear on those who are still walking in disobedience. May they praise God for his holiness and the way that we seek to live holy lives after him. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would be with us now as we now in singing and song and worship fix our eyes, our gaze on your holiness. May we be swept up in it. May you draw us to yourself by the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. And would you enable us by the power of the Holy Spirit to make us holy from the inside out. May we leave our lives of rebellion and self-righteousness and may we lead lives of holiness, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.